0: never know what they've been through or what they can or they can't do they're better than you general they're better than me they always are i hope to god i fought my last battle what we do in life echoes in eternity ideals are peaceful history is violent This is the theater of war. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender! <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome back to the theater of War podcast, episode 3. I am your host Trevor, and today we'll be discussing the 2012 movie Day of the Siege. Now this movie uh, the, the events surrounding it are the second Siege of Vienna in 1683. Now this conflict saw the Holy League, which was predominantly, which was a Catholic uh, alliance, of the Austrians, Poles, uh, the Germans, and obviously the Holy Roman Empire, uh, fighting the Muslim Ottoman Turks. So, without further ado, let's get into the history of the Second Siege of Vienna. So, let's start, in 1676, the Ottoman Grand Vizier Ahmed Kaprulu end up dying. Um, during his reign, he saw 12 years of peace between the Austrian and Ottoman empires, before which they were involved in a small war, uh, the Austro-Turkish War, from 1663 to 1664, when the Peace of Vesfer was signed. Now, kaprulu was pretty pleased with the terms of the treaty. However, his predecessor was um, a little less... Um, he was a fanatically anti-Austrian Turk by the name of Kara Mustafa Pasha. And so uh, in 1682, the treaty, uh, it should have been extended, but the peace talks broke down and um, the treaty subsequently ended between the two nations. Um, And further to the West, and so now you have to look to the west, um, where there was another grand rivalry between the Habsburgs, the ruling class of the uh, of the Aust- of the Austrian Empire, um, and France. Uh, France being completely anti-Austrian, um, they noticed the growing tensions and it kind of prodded the Ottomans. Um, f- their aspirations for expansion it was kind of like, hey. Uh, those Austrians are looking pretty weak right now. You guys should totally go attack them. <laughs> and uh, so pressure started adding up uh, on Austria. Um, and since dealing with a Protestant uprising in Hungary, which was a sort of, it was kind of a state of the, of the Austrian Empire, that the Catholic Habsburgs have been suppressing. Um, the Ottomans certainly appreciated this new development, and in sixteen eighty two the Hungarian Ottoman friendship bloomed into an alliance. Um, it was very soon uh, soon became clear that the Ottomans were preparing another war against Austria. And to really no ones surprise, on January second, sixteen eighty three the Ottoman Empire declared war on Austria. Even though the Ottomans have been preparing for this war, they were very slow to respond and prepare the forces um, in the border regions to start to be begin their invasion. Um, it took the Ottoman army at least to the summer uh, to complete their march and were ready to invade the Austrian Empire. Uh, this delay gave the Austrians time to reach out for aid, um, and after lengthy negotiations with the Polish king, uh, John Sobieski. Um, they signed a defensive agreement with the Holy Roman Empire on the 30th of March, 1683. When the Ottoman army uh, reached the uh, town of Stuhlweisenberg on June 25th, uh, Kar Mustafa Pasha finally announced his plans. Kind of to the chagrin um, to the, of his commanders, he planned to push straight to Vienna instead of attacking the frontier strongholds. This was kind of a what-the-fuck sort of moment. Um, not only just for his commanders, but uh, the, uh, the Austro-Hungarian defenders as well. Um, the, uh, the commander of the field army, of the Austrian field army, uh, Duke Charles V of Lorraine, only had about 30, uh, 33,000 men at his disposal. And at first he tried to distract the Ottomans by just besieging the fortress of New Heisel, but it proved to be just a big fucking waste of time uh he then shifted his forces south to the fortress of rob which was built up as a uh, main line of defense against the ottomans um kind of like a mat like their version of a Maginot line but despite the preparations the ottoman tar- uh Tatars, which were kind of like their light cavalry um they're kind of an elite light cavalry, i guess the best way to put them um gave Raoul basically gave him the, the finger Crossed the river just ten miles away from the city and just kind of said, "Nah, eh, fuck that shit." Um, Charles, uh, if, if, fearing that uh, that Raoul would be flanked, left only a small garrison in the city and fell back toward Vienna. Near the town of then near uh, then going on to near the town of uh, Petronell, the Ottoman Tatars engaged Charles's rear guard. Um, after some confusion in the rear guard, they were able to organize and push back the Tatars. However, uh, unfortunately, for the next month, the Tatars would take out their frustrations on the land surrounding Vienna. They, w- they ravaged the land, leaving villages and monasteries in flames, while many of the people in these areas were raped, abducted, and unfortunately killed. Um, anyways, for Kara Mustafa was in Raub, he began doubting himself, so he sent a messenger back to the sultan, asking him for his opinion on attacking Vienna. After seven days, Pasha left a small blockade at Raub and started moving towards Vienna. Kinda not a great idea. You wait for the sultan's word and then say, eh, leave him on send. <laughs> the, uh, the week-long delay um, of this message was vital to the defenders of Vienna. Meanwhile, Emperor Leopold I organized his defenses and appointed Ernst Rüdiger von Starhenberg, commander of the garrison of Vienna. Leopold, um, he would end up leaving the city with, along with about 80,000 civilians. Uh, this would be the first time that Vienna would be attacked by an Ottoman army, Uh One and a half centuries prior, in 1529, uh, the Turks had already tested the defenses of Vienna. Once again, their defenses would be put to the test. The man in charge of preparing said defenses was the famous engineer, Georg Riempler. Um, He was already uh, aware of the formidable defenses for the upcoming battle. He understood that the the Turkish style of siege warfare. He actually had experienced it firsthand at Candia. Riempler knew the biggest threat would be the Turkish miners. Um, basically, what they, would, they would mine underneath um, the defenses, set mines, and blow them up. Um, he also knew that it would be impossible to approach the city um, from the north because of the Danube and the Vine rivers. So he focuses defenses on the western and southern, southwestern side of the city. Vienna was designed as a bastion fort with relatively low but thick walls that could withstand artillery for quite a while. These bastions and outworks were designed so that they would have these overlapping fields of fire, um, whether it was with musket or artillery. Reempler had his men cut holes in the parapets to create protected firing positions so that they could fire their muskets from, these, from uh, hard cover. With the help of the people of Vienna, um, he built entrenchments and palisades along the outside perimeter of the fortress. Um, And on the far side of the ditch, the Viennese also strengthened the covered way um, by adding additional strong points and palisade traverses. These were actually small walls along the covered covered way. Um, They were built to reduce the damage of artillery fire and prevent enfilades, which um, is when you basically fire uh, small arms, kind of almost at a, vert- at a vertical trajectory, and it, it lands um, in trench works and that kind of stuff, um, kind of a, almost like an airburst, um, and and contain the attack. Also contain the attackers in case the outer defenses um, were breached. Um, kind of creating almost like killing ground and a free fire area for the defenders. All the able-bodied people, young and old, worked frantically until the last palace, the last possible minute. Um, as for people, food, and supplies, uh, flooded the city from the hinterland. Riempler made Vienna a towering stronghold of steel, stone, and earth. On July 14th, Kara Mustafa and his men finally arrived at the gates of Vienna. Though the true size of his army is still kind of up to debate, um, it is thought to be about 150,000 men, but modern historians believe it to be closer, kind of in between 110,000 to 200,000, depending on who you ask, um, of which about 12,000 were the Janissaries, which were his elite, his elite shock troops. Um, the commander of the defense is Ernst von um try saying that five times fast. I'll try to just... Destroyed to Starhemberg for the rest of the podcast. Um, he only had about ten thousand professional soldiers, a militia made up experienced men, um, and only and had about a tenth. Only had about a tenth forces of the Ottomans. So he had to use his um, what he had at his disposal very uh, sparingly and intelligently. Uh, so the the day the Ottomans arrived, a messenger informed Polish King uh, Sobieski about the dire situation that Vienna faced. Immediately, he began to gather his army. His plan was to march before the end of June and reach the gates of Vienna with about 50,000 men. The Ottomans set up camp west of Vienna, and on July 15, Pasha sent an envoy to the Viennese government, demanding Vienna to capitulate by converting to Islam and pay tribute to the Ottomans. Scharrenberg probably refused by saying, go fuck yourself. Probably not in that way, but eh, that's what I think he said. Just uh, just then the Ottoman artillery opened fire on the city. Unusually, though, the Ottomans had significantly less artillery than they than the defenders, uh, which is a textbook mistake in siege warfare. You always want to overwhelm your uh, the city that you're sieging, not the other way around. Um, as well as lacking any sort of heavy artillery, only medium pieces. So from the range, uh, he wasn't doing much damage to the walls um, but like any other every other um, European siege at the time the Ottomans built trench systems and slowly approached the walls um, so so they would build these trenches um, that would provide protection from the incoming fire from the city as well um, and they would actually install these artillery positions along the way so that the medium artillery could actually have a better chance of breaching the walls and have better effects on target with the, ruin, uh, with the ruins of the Viennese suburbs outside of the city, this allowed the Ottomans ample cover and concealment to move up to the trenches and get close to the walls. So they used what was around them, and um, not only did the trench works, but they could actually get uh, hard cover and um, good concealment, um, obviously from the smoke and everything else, so that it would obscure the view of the, uh, of the defenders. By July 16, Vienna was completely surrounded. The isolated garrison of Vienna had to figure out a plan to deal with this encirclement. More importantly, they had the uh, how were they going to communicate with the emperor and the field army? Um, and really, the only solution was messengers. Uh, these guys were either brave, uh, with, with either brave the Danube River and try to swim across or sneak through the Ottoman camps at night. The messengers provided a trickling flow of information. However, not all of them would be so lucky as to reach um, their destination. In one case, on July 18th, um, w- one messenger was captured by the Ottomans while he was trying to r- run a message to the field army. He was then tortured until he told Kara Mustafa the number of the defenders. The Ottomans began digging three trench work uh, trenches, starting um, in the suburbs and moved towards the Lowell Louis- uh, Lowell Bastion, the Berg uh, Reveline, and the Berg Bastion. They were able to worm these uh, worm uh, worm the trenches quickly forward. Um, and in the night of July twenty second to twenty third, the first Ford Artillery uh, Battery was established and opened fired on the city. Parallel to the trenches being dug on the surface, tunnels were actually being dug um, by Ottoman miners. And on the 24th, the first two mines detonated on the far side of the ditch, opposite of the Lule and the Berg bastions. To combat this, the uh, the Viennese uh, posted lookouts in every basement to listen for digging or uh, tapping noises or anything that would uh, give away the miners' activity. They also began digging tunnels of themselves. though their miners were fewer in number and less experienced than the Ottomans because this wasn't their style of combat, obviously. Um, On July 25th, Ottoman miners damaged the Palisade opposite the the Lule and the Burg Bastions, Um, and during a successful counterattack against one of these breaches, Greenbler's arm was actually shattered. Um, and was taken back to the city where he would actually die from his wounds, um, probably from infection. Like everything else during that time, you got a paper cut, you probably died. <laughs> and unfortunately, Vienna actually lost their best engineer. The Viennese mines um, had begun harass uh, the their mines actually began harassing the Ottoman lines um, on July 26th, Their their miners blew up under the four field uh, fortifications of the Ottomans. However, this kind of had little effect, um, didn't really do anything, but it was kind of more of a show of force than anything, That I believe. Um, the following days, the Ottomans would be much more successful. They would repeat, repeatedly detonate and collapse Palisades. Um, on July 30th, a breach was made uh, by the uh, Burg Bastion that was followed up by an assault from the janissaries um so that they would these were their shock troops so they blow a hole and then they rush the position um and this attack uh the viennese couldn't they couldn't stop they were just completely overwhelmed and they were forced to abandon their position and pull back to the covered way the ottomans now held the palisades and installed more forward artillery battery uh batteries in front of the Lural bastion and in no time, their artillery uh, destroyed the elevated batteries of the defenders. Now, while the siege raged on, the, the emperor, um, Leopold I, had arrived in Germany um, in an effort to get to garner support for, for Vienna. This would be extremely expensive, and most of the finances were supplied by Pope Innocent VII, um, who wanted to prevent any more Muslim expansion in Europe further and further finances would be supplied by the archdiocese um... so yeah the uh... the the holy roman empire didn't they didn't uh, they weren't short on money um, the the reinforcements from uh... bavaria uh... would would actually end up at a, would arrive on july twenty-third and further reinforces were on their way um, this was kind of a trickle effect um, they would just kind of get whatever they could and then um... put them into combat Leopold would, uh, he'd be informed that Sobieski was gathering his forces as well. The field army commander, the Duke of Lorraine, was constantly skirmishing with the Ottoman Tatars in order to secure a route for the reinforcements north of Vienna. Um, so they had their own, like, they were constantly trying to keep their supply lines open because that's really the make or break of a siege if the city being siege can get supplies, get reinforcements, and, um, if the Ottomans had shut down those lanes, uh, Vienna would be fucked. For the um, in the meantime, Kara Mustafa came under pressure uh, when he finally received a reply, a reply for his message from the Sultan. Um, he was confused as to why the fuck Mustafa attacked Vienna instead of supporting the Hungarian uprising and conquering strongholds along the border, kind of like what his commanders <laughs> suggested. Um, it's, sometimes it's best to listen to the people around you instead of just Leroy Jenkinsing yourself into a fucking siege. Tensions were rising in the city as well. When the Vien- uh, Viennese mobilized, all able-bodied men and began to fix prices on essential items like food and medicine. Um, capitalism, right? Another issue was the bodies that were beginning to pile up. Um, so, so you can't just have dead bodies riding in the streets because, well, that's that just leads to just Horrific fucking nonsense. Um, And so odors were made to deal with them. I think they just ended up burning them. um, Because burying them probably wouldn't be the best best use of their time. The Ottomans were beginning to have supply issues as well. Um, They didn't expect the siege would last this long. And so by the end of the month, the Ottomans had run out of provisions. kind of sounds like something else is happening in the world right now. Um, I'm just going to leave it there. Actually, not. Uh, fuck Russia and all their shit they're doing. Messengers were still being sent out of the city, um, but at a cost of uh, 200 ducats, which was about $100,000. Um, they were risking their lives and um, they want to be properly reimbursed for it, so I can't fault them for that. Um, there was actually a Polish noble in the city who disguised himself as an Ottoman and was successfully able to get out and come back, um, get out, come back into the city. Um, and he brought news of the relief force of about 70,000 men were coming. Um, they just didn't know when they just knew they were coming. So rumor has, and funny, funny little side story, a little Cliff Clavin moment here. Um, Fun fact. Uh, rumor has it that um, as a reward, for he used his reward money to open the first cafe in Vienna um, and use the leftover coffee beans left behind by the Ottomans. Um, even though most experts today kind of doubt that, I think it sounds pretty cool, so I'm going to go with that. And back to the siege. Uh, Ottoman pressure on the covered way increased day by day. On August 3rd, the, they conquered a long stretch of it, too. The defenders were forced to abandon the Palisades. Um, the Ottomans then tunneled their way into a large ditch opposite the Bastions. While they began to advance their lines, the defenders were able to utilize their low uh, the, the low-lying uh, campanier and um, using these positions, they could continue deadly fire, um, accurate fire on the advancing Ottomans, regardless of... The Viennese, However, regardless of the Viennese, were able to blow some of the, the Ottoman mines. The attackers continued to, uh, to press the defenders um, and keep uh, pressing the attack. On August 8th, the first Janissaries reached the city walls, um, and they were subsequently repelled. Over the next couple days, uh, the Ottomans would detonate mines under the bastions, but in the last possible moment, every time the Viennese were able to repair the breaches um, and repel their attacks, they, were then, they then launched raids um, in an attempt to destroy the Ottoman tunnels, however, these would prove to be a complete failure and a waste of valuable men and resources. As the battle waged on at the walls of the city, things only got worse for the defenders. The bloody flux uh, broke out into the city. It's an infectious disease um, that results in diarrhea and blot. It decimated the city, and of course, no battle was complete without people shitting themselves to death. So Starmberg was desperate. Um, he had to he had to conscript every man not yet working on the defenses or fighting. Like if you had a pulse, basically, here's a rifle, defend the walls. Um, it didn't matter if you if you're able bodied really, um, and if you refused, you were subsequently shot or at least threatened to be shot. All the while, the Ottomans' progress, um, even though three of their own mines were destroyed by the, the the viennese uh countermines and artillery despite this they had advanced their trench works halfway through the ditch outside the city walls the viennese launched another attack against the ottomans but this time they actually succeeded killing sold killing many soldiers destroying the earthworks burning supplies and destroyed any mines they found um, this was a huge setback for the ottomans and it took them 12 days to regain control of their lost positions for two weeks, no side made any progress. Bloody fights still broke out here and there. Um, Ottoman mines exploded with attackers charging out of the holes, but the defenders repelled their attack. Um, sounds like something out of World War One, With both sides gaining next to nothing and suffered heavy losses. In late August, a heavy rain turned the battle into a mud fight, just a, a quagmire of just mud and blood. And This is... Basically, just what the battle needed. Uh, Starnberg mobilized his every r- resource he could and had them construct a line of defense behind the city walls, kind of preparing for a major breach. While defenders were struggling to hold up the relentless assault, the emperor had no choice but to w- wait for reinforcements as they trickled in little by little. As for the field army, the Duke of Lorraine began to move his army towards the agreed rally point at Toulon. But the reinforcements expecting to be there were late. Sobieski and his and his army didn't leave Krakow until August fourteenth. It's a it's a good good day. You know, whose whose birthday might that be? Two weeks later, uh, two weeks later than he expected. So September rolls around. Um, September first, a messenger arrived bringing news that the relief army would arrive soon. Um, he was then sent back to the emperor with a desperate message for help the defenders were on their last legs and couldn't take much more if constant bombardment wasn't bad enough food within the city had run out every night they sent up flares to signal just how dire their situations were to the relief army starberg continued to push his men hard pushing them to work on the defensive line behind the compromised section of the wall raids were still launched against the ottoman tunnels but they failed and the ottomans continued their advance starnberg had no choice uh, but to order withdrawal of his troops from the near. so he's now con- uh, consolidating and condensing his forces um, by the night of september 3rd the ottoman trenches virtually surrounded the ravelines um, and their mine tunnels reached about two to three meters under the city walls while the ottomans covered their positions with Tree trunks and sandbags. And the defenders constantly pelted them with hand grenades. Um, basically, they, they had these little tiny um, iron grenades, and they would stick a fuse in it, and it kind of worked like modern day grenades almost. Um, so, and uh, skirmishes broke out under uh, beneath the city as well. Um, as tunnels, as tunnelers encountered one another, bloody struggles broke out. On with hand weapons, and in muddy dark tunnels, the men blindly fought for their lives. Um, I can't imagine what that would have been like. Um, it's something that we would see in World War I, they were doing it in the 17th century. When the Duke of Lorraine and King Sobieski finally met up, they held a war council. They got along quite well, actually, and you know, they didn't have any like dick measuring contests, and Charles V left overall command to Sobieski then in early september the first mine detonated under the city walls while having the desired effect loose debris sloped down into the ottoman trenches and slowed their advance um, this delay actually allowed the defenders to fortify the breach then another large explosion tore down a large section of the burg bastion Janissaries advanced up the rubble but The ascent was too steep, and with steady fire from the defenders, the Janissaries had to pull back. This allowed the defenders to fortify that breach as well. Both sides were beginning to grind grind themselves down to a nub. The Ottoman troops were beginning to resent Mustafa because he was the cause of their pain, um, the Janissaries especially, because the siege had lasted longer than the typical 40 days. This they fear that Mustafa couldn't negotiate terms at this point and it would deprive them of their right to plunder the city. Then two more mines detonated under the little bastion and they, and their assault was, was repelled again too. I mean, I don't know how these these Viennese defenders were able to just hold up against this, but god damn. Inside the city, more problems kept arising. And wait, there's more. Um, with only about 4,000 men left, uh, to fight on top of that, the artillery crews refused to fight unless they were given a massive pay raise. The civilians would only work when they were threatened with death, so Starmberg had like almost a uh, mutiny on his hands um, to, which was not ideal in time of a siege <laughs> so once again, they back to the relief army. Um, they drew closer. Uh, Kar Mustafa began to feel the pressure he wanted to take the city before it arrived. Um, It wasn't until a Viennese trader informed him of the relief army that he knew how desperate his situation was. He made preparations for an upcoming battle um, with no chance, with no choice, excuse me. Uh, He redeployed his troops to face a relief army. December 8th, the Ottomans uh, placed five huge mines under the walls and were ready to light the fuse. Just then, the relief army came into sight. As the sun rose above Vienna on September 12th, the Relief Army began their advance down the hill. The left flank was Charles V's fo- focus. The center was held by a mix of Bavarian, Saxony, and other German state troops. And on the right w- w- was the Polish, led by King Sobieski himself. Facing about 80,000 Ottomans, they would be outnumbered. But that, that wouldn't matter at all. The left flank of the Relief Army made its first contact and began pushing back the Janissaries. Steadily advancing, their relief army pushed forward. After about six hours of fighting, Charles V had reached the Ottoman camp, halting to allow the Polish on the right flank to catch up. At four in the afternoon, the winged Hussars arrived. Cue the Sabaton. Uh, They stormed down the hill. King Sobieski personally led the attack of the 18,000 men. Kind of like something out of Theoden that you'd see in Return of the King. Uh, clad in plate mail, adored jewels and fine animal furs and a big fuck-off lance. And most notably they had these two huge winged crests um, attached to their backs. Just these badasses of fucking history. At about 100 paces, the real charge began. At 50... 50 paces, they spurred their horses into a full gallop and lowered their lances and smashed into the terrified Ottomans. Lances splintered, horses trampled and crushed men. The the men in the rear were terrified by the sight of the the men skewered like pigs, seeing their comrades simply thrown aside. Ottoman uh, formations broke apart as the hussars dropped. Their broken lances and reached for swords, sabers, pistols, and war hammers as they drove through the disordered enemy. Wave after wave, they regrouped their charge and charged into the Ottoman lines. Songwriter Vespasian Kochowski described it as this quote, No sooner does a tsar lower his lance than a turk is impaled on its spike, which not only disorders but terrifies the foe. That blow that cannot be defended against or deflected off transfixing two persons at a time. Others flee in eager haste from the sight like flies in a frenzy. End quote. Pretty fucking badass, if you ask me. Seeing the relief army crush the Ottomans, the defenders of Vienna muscled up their strength and launched a final assault into the Ottoman trenches, where they were just outside the city. Before the sun had set, the battle and the siege of Vienna was over. Kara Mustafa and his remaining forces fled. After the battle, the Polish king uh, the Polish began looting the Ottoman camp, finding enormous treasures, while Charles V did not believe the battle was over and kept his forces in battle order. The Viennese, as for the Viennese, uh, they began to assess the damage and were able to find the five Ottoman mines under the wall and realizing just how close they came to losing their wall and Probably ended up losing the city. It wasn't until September 18th uh, that the relief army set out to chase Mustafa's army. Even though he was on the run, Kara Mustafa searched for a scapegoat. However, the Sultan was well aware of the truth. On December 25th, while he was in Belgrade, emissaries of the Sultan delivered him a death warrant and then proceeded to strangle him with a silk string. And that, folks, wraps up the Siege of Vienna. So now that we've discussed the history uh, surrounding the Siege of Vienna, let's, uh, let's get into the movie here. So the Day of the Siege was a, a joint production, uh, Italian and Polish production. Um, and I, I kind of mixed feelings on it. So let's do the, the good stuff first um, and kind of like what it gets right um, to start. Now, the movie itself, uh, the main protagonist is a man by the name of Marco Avino, who uh, was played by F. Murray Abraham. It's funny enough, he actually was a real person. Um, And he wasn't just a normal man until, uh, a normal monk, excuse me, until 1676 when he apparently healed a bedridden nun um, and kind of got... uh, Gained notoriety for that, um, and people began to consider him a sort of miracle worker, um, and many uh, many of the uh, the citizens would seek him out. Um, you know, hear my ailment, and such. Um, he became so famous that Leopold I brought him in as a counselor. So, like we see in the movie, uh, Leo, Leopold was indecisive, and um, Davino. Would uh, was a little bit more forceful and kind of was his counsel, but just able to kind of steer him in a in the in the right path or God's path or whatever. Um, it does get some parts of the story right, um, especially the complexities uh, politically of the the Holy League um, that were they were just involved in the Thirty Years' War prior, um, and there was you know bickering and political intrigue and you deal with these inbred idiot nobles and they all want their own thing. I mean, for instance, like we saw with uh, King Sobieski, they thought that he was just kind of a peasant compared to them. Um, Didn't come from this inbred bloodline like they did. Um, And their hesitation to allow this general. He wasn't like a, a noble or anything. He was just a general in their eyes. To to command. Shocking, you want a general to lead your army, not an inbred idiot. Um I gotta say, Efmer Abraham did a pretty good job. I mean, he's kind of one of those people that when he pops up I'm like, Oh, I kinda like him. I mean he he knows how to act. Um we'll get into the rest of them. Um the the Wayne hussars looked really cool. Um I'm a kind of a geek for them. Being Polish, it's kind of a a point of uh, ancestral pride. Not that I don't think I had any ancestors that were winged histor, Star, but if I did, cool. If not, oh well. Um, That's really about it that that I have. Um, They got some of the events right um, as far as the timeline that we see. Um, And I'll go into it a little bit when I go into the negatives and kind of what this movie doesn't exactly get right, um, but as far as that, it was it was okay. Um, so let's get into the negatives of the movie. And just to be clear, I don't go into movies trying to find the negatives. I don't like having a negative experience when I watch these movies. Um, but sometimes you can't help but but notice it. So first and foremost, it looks fucking cheap. Um, and this wasn't a cheap production. Um, I don't have the numbers on me right now, but uh, they're, uh it just looked bad. It didn't look like—it looked like a uh, PlayStation 2 sort of graphics. Um, the uh, everything from the 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 city to the throne rooms to even just the the uh, smoke coming off the muskets and the cannons. Everything was just this really just bushly uh CGI. It just it looked bad. Um the acting was pretty bad as well. Um I think F. Murray Abraham was probably the best one out of them all. Uh everyone else was pretty uh they just they just weren't good. Um that's just my personal opinion on them. I mean they're notable actors in their own rights, but I just it was bad. Um they seem to do a lot of ADR too. Um I don't think a lot of these people probably spoke English, even though the movie wasn't English. You could tell that it just didn't add up. Like you could watch their mouse moves. Like that's what is it, a Giallo film from the nineteen seventies. Um, so that was also very distracting. I would actually preferred it to, for them just to have subtitles. Um, it's strange that it was in English, even though it was an Italian Polish um, production. Um, Kara Mustafa, he kind of was this Weird, mustache-twirling bad guy. Uh, now, yes, he was arrogant. Um, he wanted to capture Rome. He wanted to turn it, turn uh, St. Peter's Cathedral into a mosque, uh, which would have involved a lot of murder and mayhem and a lot of bad shit. So I don't have any love towards the Catholic Church. Obviously, they, their track record speaks for themselves. However, this guy was just one step above this was almost kind of borderline racist in a way it kind of felt like it's like ah it's like what the fuck are you doing dude um and they also speaking on him it invents this weird narrative that mustafa had saved Davino's life which never fucking happened i don't know why they insisted on like forcing this sort of uh memory event into the movie into the history it doesn't make much sense but they did it anyways i guess to add conflict and drama but it works does not work at all um it also exaggerates the numbers um they constantly said all oh, 300,000 men 300,000 men even the experts agree that's wasn't even the highest at 200,000 men I'm not like now i are splitting hairs or numbers here but 300,000 is a bit of an exaggeration if you ask me um and also, it—I don't think it does a good. It doesn't do the siege justice. A lot of this movie is spent talk uh, talking back and forth with F. Murray Abraham and his friend about why Muslims are bad and Catholics are good. Um, meanwhile, they could have been on, spent a lot more times on the siege, on what was happening in the city with the uh, with the Ottoman Turk, and just—I feel that it. Didn't give enough. I mean, you didn't get into the siege till about an hour into the movie, and by that time it was start. I was starting to look at my, at my watch, and like is it over yet? Um, uh, and Davino had these weird Jason Voorhees teleportation abilities. Like he would be in Vienna, then he would be in uh, Germany, and then he would be on the battlefield, and he'd be mo- mo- with Karim Mustafa. It's like, how the fuck are you? You're, you're one monk. Do you have your is, these magical Jesus powers that are giving you this teleportation ability. Um, so that was just really bizarre to me. Um, and the the editing, the, the editing was so bad and confusing. It was I, one moment. It just, it, there was no transitions. They didn't let any scenes play out. It was just boom, boom, boom. It was just not good at all. Um, needless to say, I'm glad I didn't spend money on this movie. I watched it on Tubi for free. Even though it has commercial breaks. Um, I Much needed breaks from this movie at times. Um, I just feel bad for this movie. It's just not good. Uh, I don't really recommend people checking it out. I don't think it's um, really worth anybody's time. If you want to check it out, it's on Tubi for free. Uh, You're probably better off just watching a Sabaton music video. um, And saving yourself the time. But if you want to, check it out. Tell me what you think. Um, And that's really about it. I have for it. Uh, So that wraps up coverage of the 2012 movie Day of the Siege and the history surrounding the Siege of Vienna. Uh, Thank you again uh, for your support and listening and making it through here. And if you have any feedback whatsoever, I'd love to hear it. Um, You can email me at theaterofwarpodcast at gmail.com. Um, check me out on Facebook Uh, I have a little small Facebook page just search Theater of War give me a like and I would definitely appreciate it so until next time those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it take it easy